Welcome to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton Center here at the Ag PhD Field Day site. We're just wrapping up the two-day Ag PhD Soils Clinic. If you've been tuning in online or for those who are in the audience today, thank you so much. We really appreciate all the support. Man, we've got a ton of questions that have come in uh, online, and I know our folks here in person also have a bunch of questions. So today's show is going to be made up with questions uh, from our live audience here or questions that have been sent in to us also. We'll get to a number of those. So most of them will be soils related, but hey, if you're here and you have a question on something else, so we've been talking soils for two days. Perhaps you're curious about uh, weed control or something else. We'd gladly take those questions too. Uh, in our room here, we've got a couple of folks with microphones. Just raise your hand if you have a question. They'll come to you if you could just say uh, your first name and what state you're from uh, or country, if that applies to you. Uh, we, we'd be more than happy to come out and take your questions as we go. Darren, do you have the list of questions uh, that we had been getting in? So while we were doing this the last couple of days, we also had a live stream, and we were getting a lot of questions in on the live oh, stream yes. as well. So anyway, uh, yeah, if you're in the room, if you've got a question right now, just raise your hand, and we'll come around to you with a microphone. And again, if you could just give us your first name and the state or country you're from, if you're from a different country in the United States, that would be great. All right, let's take our first question here then. Hi, Jim is my name from South Dakota, and I've been at your uh, nutrient seminar here the last couple of days. We went over a chart a lot with the 300 bushel corn needs, and I had a uh, question. The grain we've got broken down, how much it takes for the nutrients versus the stover and then the total. Now, if you leave the stover on the field, do we not take that into account? Okay, there are two ways to look at that. So number one, you have to take that into account to grow the crop. But if we're looking at, all right, we just raised that crop and now we're going into next year and we left all the residue out, all that left the field is the nutrients that were in that grain. So in other words, if we say, um, we just want to make sure we're maintaining our nutrient levels, that's where, and I pulled it up on the screen here too, uh, we would just say, all right, we just removed 100, uh, well, it, my example is 300 bushel corn. But anyway, we removed a bunch of phosphate, we removed a bunch of K2O potassium, and that's at least put back what the grain removed. Okay, so that, that's really what we need. But in order to raise that crop to start with, we have to have all those nutrients in that total, the grain plus the stover. Let's just say this for an example. Let's just say, man, I raised 300 bushel corn, but my stock quality was terrible. I wasn't happy with that wasn't happy with how the plants held together, maybe you need to build your K. Even though you're not taking any of that stover off and you're applying grain removal rates, you may need to be applying higher than grain removal rates for a while so your crop can extract the whole 405 pounds of K2O potassium that it needs. All right, let's get to the next question here. Um, Lee from South Dakota. I've got a 6-plus uh, percent organic matter Across most of my farm, 16 to 22 CCs. Yep. But my iron is half of my manganese. My manganese is two to 300, and my iron is mostly around 100. And these are on Malik desk, correct? Yes. Yeah, so this is one of the things Neil Kinsey talks about quite often, and we discussed this a little bit over the last couple of days. Um, it, you, ideally, we'd love to have the iron levels higher than the manganese levels. But, and I'm trying to get this pulled up on the screen here so I can go back and show you this data that we had off our own farm. 
For us, at least, it didn't seem to make a lot of difference on the malic test when we had manganese levels actually higher than iron levels. So, yeah, I've got that pulled up there. So anything less than one to one or anything less than one on that slide there that's where the manganese is actually higher than the iron and you can see we still had some really good yields in fact the very best yielding one acre spot on our farm for corn because we do one acre grids you can see that uh, uh, right near 300 that was um, it, it had more manganese than it did iron so am I super worried about that no uh, but what I would say is, you know, I have no problem if you want to start adding a little bit of iron and just see if you're getting yield response. If you do that on a smaller scale and you're getting some yield response, then by all means, we want to continue it. We're going to do more work with this too and see what we see over time and over years. But this is the first year we've been doing Malik tests. And we, we have, as you can see, whether it was corn, corn silage, or soybeans, we have a lot of spots where there's actually more manganese than there is iron. And the yields are still pretty decent. So here is one on soybeans where that line, as you can see, it's pretty flat. It's not showing that, oh boy, if I get more iron than manganese, I'm definitely increasing my yield. But I would also say we brought up something that when your iron levels are lower than your manganese levels, that's also where you're more at risk for things like iron deficiency chlorosis and some other potential problems. So ideally, if we can, uh, you know, we'd like to be bumping those iron levels. All right, thanks for the question. Got another one back here. Uh, Trent Christensen from Northeast Nebraska. I was just looking at some of these uh, soil samples that you had. There was one with the K levels at 200 parts per million with a 4.4% base saturation, which is, you'd say, pretty good. But then I compare to another one that has 239 parts per million potassium, and the K percentage is 1.4%. So on something like that, are you not too concerned on the actual parts per million and more on the percentage side? Correct. And the reason why is because typically we have more calcium and magnesium in that soil. So a lot of times it's just a heavier soil. So I don't know which one of those at the end, um, you know, which ones you're looking at. But anyway, the point is we're trying to keep things relatively in ratio. And so we talked a lot the last couple of days about ratios. So whether it's phosphorus to zinc, phosphorus to copper, or in this case, like with potassium in relation to those other nutrients in the base saturation test, which would be calcium, magnesium, hydrogen, and sodium. And so when we've got a heavier soil that has more calcium and magnesium in there, even though, yeah, our parts per million sounds okay, it's still not enough to keep it in ratio. And that's why we're showing, like with our base saturation percentage charts on our farm, it's really indicated, boy, we got to get to that 4% base saturation K or we're suffering from yield loss. So yeah, there's a fair amount of parts per million, but no, we're more focused in that case because parts per million is good. On the base saturation K, we want to keep building. Thank you. Yep. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting live from the Morton Center at the Ag PhD Field Day site following the Ag PhD Soils Clinic. We'll be right back with more questions from our audience after this. This is a wake-up call. 
for you and your field's microbiome from Source by Sound Agriculture. Source is a revolutionary foliar-applied biochemistry that doesn't rely on bulky nutrients or finicky biologicals to wake up your soil and unlock more nutrients per acre, all with a low use rate. It's like caffeine for microbes. Source works with the soil you've already got and the equipment you already use. So if you're a grower, go to sound.ag and learn more. And if you're a microbe, time to rise and shine. What do you think of when you hear Palmer amaranth or water hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, Fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like water hemp and Palmer amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of Fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put Fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Boost your productivity and profitability with Soil Warrior from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and your yield potential in just one strip-till pass. Now that's ROI. Contact us today at SoilWarrior.com. Conditioning low-moisture beans to 13% can add semi-loads to your bottom line. And with our 13 for 13 year-end special, make 13% beans possible with 13% off an end-zone bin system. Use promo code 13 for 13 at farmshopmfg.com. Go long for season-long foliar disease protection that starts at plant. Only Zyway brand fungicides from FMC provide season-long inside-out foliar disease protection. A single at-plant application provides comparable performance in corn yield protection to that of VT to R1 foliar fungicides against diseases like gray leaf spot, northern corn leaf blight, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or zyway.ag.fmc.com to learn more. Always read and follow all label directions. back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio broadcasting live following the Ag PhD Soils Clinic from the Morton Center at the Ag PhD Field Day site. You know, Brian, it almost felt like we could go outside and have a field day. It's been 40 to even 50 degrees here the last few days. That's amazing for mid-January in South Dakota. Well, it hasn't hit 50. But uh, yeah, I think today when I looked, it was 37 degrees. That is, uh, it's very nice compared to what it was. The other morning when I, when I uh, stepped out of my pickup to go into, the office, to go into our office, the wind chill was 36 below zero. And most of the time I only have, since I only have about eight steps to go from where I parked my pickup into our office, I don't even wear a coat. And that morning, I grabbed my coat because I'm like, even for eight steps, that's too cold when it's 36 below. Oh, that is a cold windchill, no doubt about that. It was above freezing this morning. That was really nice walking in here. All right, let's take our next question. Hey, guys. Uh, Mark from South Dakota. So you got a question about copper. You had mentioned that as a possibility with foliar or in furrow. Have you seen a way to possibly use that as a fungicide? And what Absolutely. rate and product? Ooh, there are a lot of different products out there. I, I'll say this, and I was just looking around the room to see if Glenn was still in the room, but I know a couple of the guys that worked with Glenn in our research stuff, they've sprayed some foliar copper, and in some cases it looked like a flamethrower out there that uh, you can definitely overdo it, and there are some sources that aren't the safest to put on foliar. However, there are a bunch of foliar products that are getting used with copper for disease control. And I know especially in this geography where we worry about Goss's wilt in corn, that's a bacterial disease, there have been guys trying copper products for years on, uh, on corn for Goss's wilt prevention. Uh, so you definitely can do it. It's low-rate stuff, and I would certainly look at 
uh, trying it on a small scale before you got crazy with it. Foliar. I like it soil applied personally. That's how. Uh, that's how we've been doing it. Okay, so foliar. One of the big advantages is some people are using products that uh, that are basically just copper, and they spray it foliar because they can get some bacterial activity too. So when we talk fungicides here, keep in mind fungicides only kill fungus, and we don't have any great bactericides. So there are certainly people who are using, uh, and there are a variety of different ones that are out there. But anyway, they'll, they'll use these copper products because they have some activity, activity on bacterial diseases. So let's say it's Goss's wilt or bacterial leaf streak or something like that. It might be worth a try to give it a shot on that. In terms of foliar fertilizer, yeah, my biggest fear is just we put too much on, we burn the leaf, and then, yeah, we might have raised the level of concentration in the leaf, but did we really help things or did we not? Here's, here's another thing I want you to think about. Copper sulfate is really super cheap compared to a lot of these other nutrients we're talking about. And it doesn't take a lot of copper sulfate. So what we'll often do on our farm, if we're low on copper, we'll just go out in the fall and we'll spray copper sulfate. And uh, we can do it variable rate or whatever if we need to, but we just go spray that and then we're done. And a lot of times, since copper doesn't move in soil, and since we pull so little out of the soil every year, we can do it one time and we don't have to do anything again for copper for many years. All right, say another question over here. Hi, Andy from Minnesota. Um, I had a question about how you were able to build uh, K levels in high pH soil, and I believe that's where you uh, said the 15 pounds of elemental sulfur for 10th uh, pH level uh, to 6.5. Um, is that a hard and fast rule, no. 15 nope. pounds? How did you come up with that number, and would you expect to build those uh, if you had less? Well, we've, the, come, we've come up with it a variety of ways. <laughs> we've, we've uh, number Let, one, just looked at different pounds per acre of elemental sulfur, where we've tried as high as 1,000. And we've also looked at, all right, let's just try and find a number that we would do for each tenth of a point of pH. And we've tried 15 pounds. We've tried 25 pounds. Uh, we've tried a bunch of different things because the the recommendations that we've seen from various universities, including Clemson, including Ohio State and others, have been really all over the board and not consistent. And so I know that there's a difference depending on your CEC. I know there's a, a difference depending on where you're at and how much rainfall you're going to get and the, the uh, bioactivity in your soil and all that. I'll say this. If you don't have good drainage, we just have not seen results with elemental sulfur. You need to have good drainage. You need to have good microbial activity in your soil to actually break that elemental sulfur down and do what you need to do. So make sure the drainage is good. But assuming your drainage is good, then I would just pick a number, start with that, do some experiments on a small scale, and then work up from there. So this building a K, building K levels in high pH, it's one of the things Neil Kinsey often says, um, you can't do that with commercial fertilizer, but we have proven that you can, but we are working on that uh, that that pH thing, and that's kind of where this came from and where the question came from. But uh, let me let me give you the the true story on this. How did we decide on fifteen pounds? It started because I said, you know what, let's try 25 pounds. And Darren goes, well, that costs too much. Let's try 15 on well, most everything. I, you can do 25 part, on your ground. Partly the cost. <laughs> partly the cost. But partly because I saw the expense when we overdo it 
and now we got to put on line. Exactly. And so I thought, let's shoot low. Right. We can always add more later, but we can't take it away once we put it out there. And I, I made the comment earlier, boy, if you were going to put on, I think Darren had an example of 195 pounds, that's like 62 bucks an acre right now for elemental sulfur. And I said, no, no. Most people are not going to do that. So honestly, maybe you could even do five pounds, and that's enough to at least uh, do a little bit, and you're going to be able to build K just like we did. I pulled those slides up on the screen, and we showed that we were able to build K just in one year uh, with pretty good application. And we've held that K level and maintained it all the way along, yet our pHs are still above 6.5, where Neil often talks about. So it's possible. It's just we got to make sure we address drainage and then whatever other things we can so we can drop that pH. All right. Uh, let's see. Where's our next, right next question right here? Yep. Okay. Uh, Matthew from eastern Nebraska. Um, how fast after you do the elemental sulfur should you retest to see if you've actually dropped the <laughs> pH? I'm assuming this is probably going to depend on your rainfall and stuff yeah, this would be on know, air, this would be on an irrigated farm as well sure. too okay soil testing is not super expensive if you say you know what i'm just going to pick uh, one certain point i'll put a flag in and i'm going to go around that and i'll sample and then i'll wait a few months and i'll sample again and i'll wait another few months and i'll sample again i mean you're only spending for a malik test 10 or 15 bucks it's not bad so if you're just curious and you say you know i'm 10 or 15 dollars curious it's soon enough I can go back and resample. If you're just into, I'm going to sample once every year, that's totally fine. But I would just give it a couple of years to, to really start working. So maybe it's going to show a lot of effect right away. Maybe it's going to take a couple of years because you're using a fairly low rate or you've had really low rainfall, and it's just going to take a while for it to break down. I, I wouldn't necessarily say I put it on. Six months later, I'm going to make a judgment of if I need to put more on. But I would say, yeah, I could look six months later. I could look a year later. I could look a couple of years later. And then after a couple of years, I'd say, okay, I didn't put enough on. Now I'll make another application. Rainfall and heat are the biggest factors. But beyond that, remember what we talked about. It's that fine particle size that we're looking for. So if you get something like, I know when we've talked with Neil Kinsey about this, he said, yeah, guys, I just want to tell you, there was this yellow flake sulfur that a lot of guys used to buy because it was cheap, but it took us five years for that stuff to break down. So just make sure if you're getting a fine particle size, now you're pretty good. Now it should break down fairly soon too. And it's great to be checking pH and checking all these things, but let's never forget what we care about really is not pH. It's not soil test levels. It's not even tissue test levels. It's what? It's yield and profit at the end. So if we're making yield and we're making profit, I don't give a rip about all the rest of that stuff. Now, normally, sure, we want to track that and we want to see and we think that, hey, we need to have the pH right and everything else. But at least if we're getting some more sulfur out there. So look at a lot of the soil tests that we went through even today. How many of them actually needed sulfur? And so our point here is simply this. There are a lot of sulfate sources, but then there's also this elemental sulfur source. And if you use elemental sulfur, that's the one that can drop the pH a little bit more, and it's a little more controlled release. It releases over time, so that is kind of nice too in maybe some lighter soils and stuff. Uh, but I'm just trying to say here, if you know you need sulfur anyway, you could pick that one source over the other source, and you're getting kind of double benefit. You're helping out on the pH, and you're supplying the sulfur you need. Get more back to more of your questions right after this. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. 
Precision crop nutrition pays. And AgroLiquid has precisely what it takes to help you succeed. The right products plus the right expertise to give you guidance based on your soils, your fields, and your goals. While our clean, seed-safe formulations and lower application rates make planter fertilizer easier than ever. AgroLiquid. Apply less. Expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Do you have crop failures due to flooding, drought, or another event? You may need to consider a better burndown regimen. Adding just two ounces of New Farm Panther SC to your tank mix not only provides faster results, it provides residual that lasts. You gain flexibility to keep your cropping options open. Ask your dealer for Panther SC and get Panther power in your tank. How can you make more profit from your soybeans this year? I'm Darren Hefty. We'll give you the answer to that question at a free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. It's Tuesday, February 15th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. We'll dive deep on topics such as pest control, resistance issues, herbicide traits, fertility, cleaning up white mold, and more. If you want to make raising beans more lucrative and fun, you don't want to miss the free Ag PhD Soybean Agronomy Workshop. Learn more at agphd.com. And while you're there, check out the other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn and wheat, a tiling clinic, two days dedicated to soils, plus a whole day devoted to natural and biological products. There's a lot of great information here, and we can't wait to share it with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. This message is for all the corn and soybean growers out there who aren't made of money. If you're using a fungicide other than Zolera FX from UPL, you should know that no corn and soybean fungicide gives you a better return on investment, period. Zolera FX has two high-performance actives delivered at full rates for maximum performance and ROI in corn and soybeans. To see the data, go to ZoleraFX.com and always read and follow label directions. Weeds rob you of yield potential, so rob them of the chance to grow with powerful corn herbicide solutions from Corteva AgriScience. Weeds won't know what hit them, but you will. Because you can count on all the top corn herbicide products, including Resicor, SureStart 2, and Keystone NXT, to effectively control weeds, you can spend less time worrying about unwanted yield-robbing plants and power on. Learn more at poweroverweeds.com power. Keystone NXT is a restricted-use pesticide. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. We're broadcasting live from the Morton Center here at the Ag PhD Field Day site. We're just wrapping up the two-day Ag PhD Soils Clinic, and if you missed it, oh, man, there is a ton of information. I would say most people here, Brian, would say, eh, they might be swimming a little bit right now that we dropped a lot in their lap. So hopefully as uh, we get a little time to, to ruminate on some of that information, all this, all this information will click for you. Let's take our next question. Oh, there we sure go, Jim. Um, we talked a little bit about molybdenum, if I'm molybdenum. saying that right. Yep. And I think you said we had to ask to have that tested, that most will not include it on our test. Correct. Yeah, but it's yep. not on a standard soil test, at least from any of the labs that, that we've seen. You, you pretty much have to request that nutrient 
in addition to your standard. So at the very end of our talk today, uh, when we were going through micronutrients, we discussed molybdenum, cobalt, selenium, selenium. and uh, there was another Did one you throw too. Nickel on there too? Uh, no, we didn't. We didn't really get into nickel. But anyway, the point is. We'd, we'd encourage you to focus on, number one, soil pH, number two, NP and K, number three, the secondary nutrients, number four, the micronutrients, and then number five, some of these lesser micronutrients like cobalt, selenium, molybdenum, things like that. So we're not saying they are unimportant. But we are saying that there are a lot of other things that most of the time make more yield and more money. But it's something where if you go, you know what, I've been balancing all these things and really working on all these things. I want to give this one a try. By all means, I'd absolutely do it. And with molybdenum, it does seem to make more difference with a lot of the legume crops like alfalfa and soybeans, for example. All right. Thank you. Yep. John from Pennsylvania. What's your thoughts on using wood chips to uh, gain or organic material oh boy man i wish our research lead glenn hers was in here uh and it <laughs> these guys up front here help glenn with with the research plots and they know if anybody mentions i want to bring wood chips out here oh glenn just well, goes nuts because they just don't break down they're so high in carbon but, that they tie up a lot of nitrogen okay so but that's going to be the big thing yep and let me step back a second most of the problems we've had on our farm over the years are because of me <laughs> And well, I'm so glad you can admit that. So Brian. here's here's what ended up happening. So I, I bought this guy. We actually talked about this. It was one of the fields that we said had a bunch of nitrogen, uh, although it did it had the least amount. It was the Simmonsma field. So we bought this field, and it had trees on there that we needed to get rid of. Okay, uh, it's junky, swampy, whatever, and we had to get rid of these trees. So I thought, you know what? Let's uh, let's chop those uh, chop those up or get them all shredded up, and uh, we'll use this wood chipper, and then we'll have these piles of wood chips, and we'll save it for the field day. So we piled it out here. We used it for the field day rather than using straw. And I'm like, boy, this is gonna work great, and it worked fine for the field day. But the problem was anywhere that we had spread those wood chips, the next year it really suffered because it tied up so much nitrogen. So to give you an idea how much nitrogen it can tie up, we also it worked in conjunction with South Dakota State University out here to have a, they called it a bioreactor, where at the end of our tile lines, they put in a whole, uh, they, they dug a great big pit and filled it with wood chips, and then the water had to run through there and then go out and, and continue running down in our waterways. So now, first of all, we don't have a lot of nitrogen coming out of our, uh, even though we put on high rates out here, we raise tremendous crop. So we had low levels all the time in the tile lines of nitrate. But boy, when it went through that, the wood chips, there wasn't a drop of nitrate after it went through the wood chips. It sucked it all up. So our problem is, if you're going to use wood chips to build organic matter, you can, but just understand there is an unbelievable tie-up with nitrogen there. Because... We talked about the carbon to nitrogen ratio with corn stalks and with wheat straw and everything. I don't even know what the carbon to nitrogen ratio would be with that, but it's astronomical. So it's just going to tie a lot of nitrogen up. So here again, we'd say, try it on a small scale. We learned on a small scale. Uh, yeah, spread a little on us. your brother's ground yep. and then figure it out. <laughs> Thanks. Okay. Uh, question back here. Hi, Ron from South Dakota. Uh, so I'm a self-described toll geek. Um, every time I'm looking at something, I'm trying to figure out how can I automate it, how can I write some kind of computer thing to do it. Awesome. So I'm, I'm looking at all this stuff you're doing today. It's got, there's got to be some algorithm that we can figure out to write, uh, make a spreadsheet 
Um, agronomists we, have anything like that? Yeah, we, we do. So right toward the end of the book there. Yeah, one of the last few pages we had a, a scan code. I don't know if Brian put it up on the screen at all, but there yeah, is one to, uh, to a spreadsheet that we've got. I, Brian we, wanted me to work through. We also have our soils app. Yeah, Brian wanted me to work through a few examples using that spreadsheet. Unfortunately, it's three pages on an Excel spreadsheet. So what we need to do is get that into one page and one view so it looks great. So, yeah, if you can figure that one out, feel free to, to manipulate that document to, to make it work because that would be great, Ron. I'd appreciate that. That's awesome. All right, we had another question over here too. And I don't know, were you guys still – Okay, over the break. Ah, okay. See, this is the fun part about being a live audience is every once in a while people are like, you know, I want to ask this, but I'm going to wait until you're on one of your breaks here and, and catch, you or catch you off to the side a little bit. Uh, that's okay. We, we got another question right over here then. We'll jump into that. Yeah, this is Matt from Kansas. And then kind of preface the question, on a 100% no-till operation, we talked about building organic matter. And yep. you said primarily that comes from the in-soil organic matter, roots, root hairs, all that decaying and everything. Yep, yep. And you still have the residue on the surface. Yep. Now, if you go ahead and lay that on the surface, don't want to walk it off the field through livestock or bale it to get Well, hold on. Hold on now. When you say livestock, you're talking about grazing. Grazing cattle. Grazing gra is great. Okay. Grazing's not going to hurt you on organic matter. And, in fact, turning some of that residue, which it's often a small percent. I think with grazing, they say it's maybe like 15 to 35%, depending on how long they're out there. It's all they're really chewing up. And they're turning it right into manure, which is fantastic. So I personally, I like it. I, if we had cattle, we'd be grazing some stocks. We'd just be really fussy about when we had them out in the field to try to avoid having a, too much compaction. And, and that's what I was going to kind of preface on that part. To avoid the compaction part of it, don't do the swath and bale part of it, but use a product like Decomp to get rid of that residue. You sure do, could. Do you see an actual nutrient benefit to that or just to basically clean up the residue? What would you see by incorporating a decomp product into a kind of a farming practice like that? Let me give you an example off our farm with, without using decomp because we have done this. But where in, in some of our fields where we're doing silage, we also want to leave some strips so we have some grain corn that we can harvest to see, okay, what do we really need to get off this ground because here's what the yield was. I, you know, well, I care about the tonnage. I care about the yield more than anything. So anyway, it was kind of interesting because one of the, the, the fields was just uh, up by the church there, just a mile west of where we're at right now. And anyway, it was on the north side, and you could see it almost all season long where, where we had the silage cut, so there was no residue there. We had way faster emergence, and the corn was taller. And where we didn't, where, and we strip-tilled even, so, but it was corn on corn, but we strip-tilled into that, and where we hadn't broken that residue down uh, then, or taken the residue off, then we had the slower emergence. So it's not always necessarily going to translate to yield or nutrients in total. It's going to be nutrients are going to come available faster, and then you've got less residue there to keep that soil colder in the spring. So the advantages we see are early in the season, you might have a few more nutrients, and you should definitely have a little bit uh, better, faster, more consistent emergence. Well, I think it's interesting when we look at microbial breakdown of different things. And back to the question from Pennsylvania with the wood chips, when you look at the strobilier and fungicides, Brian, where were they found? It was a wood-rotting wood fungus. fungus. And so there, there is a lot of work being done on, well, what can we do with microbes to help recycle these nutrients that much faster? 
I don't know how many nutrients are in some of these corn stalks that have been out there for a while, where the rain's flushed out a lot of the K and so forth. I don't know that there's a huge amount. It's more carbon, I think, than anything at, at that, that point. point. But So I don't know what the big impact will be on nutrients, because uh, I think a lot of that's already going. But uh, having more microbial activity out in your soil is a good thing, and, and improving soil health is a really important thing. So you do see a difference if you've got a really healthy soil like, hey, I've had this farm for 20 years. We've really got it cooking. Uh, we can break down residue a lot faster than that new piece of ground that's compacted and doesn't have enough nutrients out there to feed all the microbes in the soil. All right, we're getting uh, questions mainly around fertility here, but I do like uh, that we're talking the complete package with residue and rotation and livestock and everything here on our show. Hopefully you're enjoying it. We'll continue with more questions from our audience here at the Morton Center at the Ag PhD Field Day site following our Ag PhD Soils Clinic. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Morton Buildings knows that great buildings need great people, and we want you to be the newest member of our team. Morton is expanding its construction crew, and we're seeking new and experienced candidates to fill our crew member positions. Morton provides great pay and training, so be a part of the next generation to build Morton. Don't let the opportunity to join the best construction crew in the business pass you by. Learn more on our careers page at mortonbuildings.com. Farming is probably the most natural thing for a person to do. It taught me how to take pride in my work, how to put something ahead of myself, whether it was getting up early to feed the livestock or working late to bring in the harvest. Farming taught me to give it my best, no matter the job. My name is Tanner. I'm a farmer. I work for Case IH. Case IH, built by farmers. Don't let resistant weeds win on your field. Herbicide-resistant weeds are a fierce competitor of corn growers. Tough 5EC, a selective contact herbicide manufactured by Belgium Crop Protection, can help. Tough 5EC synergizes HPBD inhibitors and enhances the effect of PS2 herbicides. Add Tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix team and beat resistant weeds. Ask your local retailer about Tough 5EC or visit BelgiumUSA.com. Always read and follow label instructions. We now bring you an important news bulletin. This just in from Live Action News. Innovation has come to the world of burndown. New Elevore herbicide controls your toughest weeds. Even glyphosate and ALS-resistant weeds like mare's tail and henbit. Talk with your retailer about Elevore herbicide today and ask how you can start elevating your burndown. What do you think of when you hear Palmer, Amaranth, or Water Hemp? If you use fierce herbicide in your soybean fields, you don't have to think about them at all. With two effective modes of action and up to eight weeks of residual control, fierce takes on even the toughest weeds like Water Hemp and Palmer, Amaranth. Take control of your soybean fields and get incentives from Bayer Plus Rewards when you choose the power of fierce herbicide. Talk to your local retailer today to put fierce to work in your fields. Always read and follow label directions. Heat, drought, wind, hail, northern corn leaf blight, gray leaf spot. If your corn is under stress, you are too. Get Veltima fungicide, swift activity, with fast payback, an expanded application window. Makes life simple, and it's the secure choice. 
with powerful residual for visibly healthier corn. Swift, simple, secure. Veltima fungicide. Call your BASF rep today. Always read and follow label directions. Veltima fungicide is not registered in all states. Welcome back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Morton Center on the Ag PhD Field Day site following the Ag PhD Soils Clinic. And we had a number of questions. We had a number of viewers watching online. Perhaps you were watching online today. Uh, and so some of these questions, it's kind of interesting, Brian. There's groupings here of, hey, while we were talking about nitrogen, here's a couple we didn't get to. First of all, in no-till, would it be wise to spray 10 gallons of liquid 28% nitrogen on wheat straw and corn stubble Will that help speed breakdown and improve things on my farm? Well, it will if you're low on nitrogen at the end. So and it, and if you do it early enough. Yep. A lot of times we've seen guys, now if you're going right after wheat and you're out there and it's still... Got all kinds of time. Yeah, it's you hot. got lots of time left in the summer, no problem. You bet you're going to speed up breakdown a lot. But let's say you did it after corn and you didn't get done harvesting corn until Thanksgiving and everything's already freezing up, snowflakes are in the air. No, there's hardly any microbial activity that's going to happen because it's too cold. So you're just trying to feed those microbes to help break things down. But again, if you already had a whole bunch of nitrogen out there, so we've talked about like in our farm, we had this carryover in. Well, if there was still a lot of nitrogen left in the residue, then what good does it do you to throw more nitrogen into it? All right, let me let me hit two more end questions, yep. then we'll get to our next one here. Is yours end question too? Oh. Are, Jim from South Dakota, are you going to lose a, this N you just, you're just no. putting on it? No, no not when it's 10 gallons. It's going to get all tied up by those bacteria yep, working on the breakdown. That's only 30 pounds of nitrogen. No, you're not going to lose that. So, nope, we're not worried about it because, like Darren said, well, what did we talk about earlier today? If you're going corn on corn, a lot of times you say throw an extra 50 pounds out there. So, yeah, the odds that that's going to get lost are slim to none. All right, another nitrogen question here. What source of nitrogen are you using for side dressing corn, and how it, or what is your preferred placement method? Uh, liquid 32%, and my preferred placement method is I like using like a Y drop or I'm going to dribble it on the soil surface. If we have rain coming in the forecast, if we don't, I'd prefer to inject it. Okay, and then the last nitrogen one here, and we'll jump back to our questions from our audience. Have you seen any benefit of fertigating Eight gallons of 32% yep. and two gallons of ammonium thiosulfate on soybeans. Well, we, we're, we're all, we are all in favor of fertigation. Okay. Now, to go that specific, that it's eight of one and two of the other, look, I don't know as far as that goes. You've got to look at what your soils are looking like, what your, your plant tissue analysis says. So fertigation, yes, I'm great with that. But is that the exact right mix? I don't know necessarily. Now, I would say if we're going to be putting more nitrogen on, the timing for that in soybeans is not early. The timing for that is usually flowering at the earliest, but potting, that's when the soybeans need an awful lot of nitrogen. All right, we got a, yep, question. Let's hit this question right over here quick. With kind of a follow-up to the gentleman asking about spraying the UAN on your corn stubble, I've heard the term living soil, such as having a cover crop. Are we going to yep. experience the same problems of slow microbial breakdown through the winter, say using like winter oats or triticale? Well, you know, when we, we have a live crop out, so let's say you're saying you harvested corn, you seeded a cover crop out there, what are we going to see out of that? Uh, if there's a brassica in there, a lot of times we see faster residue breakdown. So if you had something other than just a straight grass crop, that might be preferential. Uh, you could add more nitrogen 
as you're starting that cover crop off. That would help get that cover crop off to a start and also feed those microbes that are going to be breaking down that residue. So that may be an alternative for you too. But here's what I worry about. If it is a living cover crop, it is living and it is doing what? It's pulling nutrients in. So I gave the example today of out in, you go to the east coast of the United States in the Delmarva region, it's very common to be using rye there as quickly as they possibly can. They want something growing there all the time to be sucking up nitrogen every day. Because don't forget, your, your soil is releasing nitrogen as it has heat through the organic matter mineralization process. So there's nitrogen. Even if you didn't apply nitrogen, there's some in the ground, and it's going to be sucking it up. So what my fear would be is if you're assuming, oh, I'm going to have some nitrogen left over from last year, this cover crop sucks it all up. And now eventually when the cover crop breaks down, it'll release it, but you're not going to have a lot day one. So I, I, I just, I'd be a little cautious with that thinking to Darren's point, oh, the residue broke down, so I don't have to worry about having extra nitrogen out there. Well, maybe, yeah, but the flip side of that is I don't have a whole lot of available nitrogen day one because that cover crop used a bunch up. So, and it's going to vary depending on the cover crop, but just I'd be a little cautious with that. And the, the, probably the biggest thing, and we didn't probably talk about it enough during our soils clinic, but we just never want to run short. We just, if you, if you get your crop short at any point, it's suffering and you can never recover that lost yield. So I, I'd just be really cautious about that. And if you're going to try something and you're going to try cutting nitrogen rates back after a cover crop, be really cautious because I would worry about that. All right, go ahead. Um, I planted, Jim from South Dakota, planted some winter rye or some rye this year on soybean stubble, stubble, excuse me. Yep. And um, was thinking, when should a, when should a person cut that off this spring? Okay. Yeah, the, when should you terminate a cover crop? Well, is, now, let me, let me ask debate. you this question. Is this in central South Dakota? Or is this the stuff right by here? Right south by here? Central South Dakota. No, no, no it's southeast. Close. Okay, yeah, it's southeast. Right yep. yep, yep. So, and the reason why I asked that question is this. The further west you go in South Dakota here, the less rainfall you have. Our biggest fear with cover crops in now, the state of is South Dakota irrigated? is rainfall. Ah, it's irrigated. Yeah. But, I, but this is where I'm going with this. So if you don't have control of that moisture and you're in a dry area, that's where we like to see that cover crop terminated early in the fall. Uh, so then we have the chance there's no more moisture getting used up and you have the chance with that cover crop there sitting there dead that you can catch snow and everything else. Now, if you're irrigated, then that takes that out of the equation. So I'm not that worried about that. So what I'm thinking about in the spring is with the next crop, we know that with most crops, corn, soybeans, wheat, whatever you want to plant this spring, the earlier planting typically pays. So I used to work with a lot of farmers who raised alfalfa, and they wanted to get one more cutting off in the spring, and then they wanted to plant something. Well, it was the 1st of June before they planted. They already lost 20%, 30% of their yield by the time they planted that next crop because they planted so late. So that's something you got to weigh out. If you say, well, boy, I can get a lot of money out of this, so I do want to let it grow, and I'm willing to take a 20% hit on my next crop, that, that's up to you. When you're in control of the moisture, though, that's my number one worry most of the time with cover crops in this particular state. Okay. Uh, take another question over here. We've got a rented field that's at a 5.2 pH. Yep. And it's year to year. We're not sure about it, so we put Pell Lime down every year. Yeah. Is that yep. okay, or should we try yep. and... Okay. No, that's well, absolutely okay. Okay, but... Uh, well, that is okay. I would still have the discussion with the landlord. And maybe you won't get anywhere, but it's at least worth showing the landlord that, look, the pH is really low. 
And so here's what we're doing now, because we don't know if we're going to have the ground, but this doesn't really fix the problem. We'd like to fix the problem, then your ground is worth more because we can yield more and everybody who's going to farm it in the future could yield more. So would you be willing to pay for the, the lime and we'll pay a little more cash rent? Or how about if we pay for the lime, but if you take the ground away from us two years from now or three years from now or whatever, we get a little bit of that money back or something like that and at least have the discussion. And if they say no, you know, you just continue on with your Pell lime thing and you're fine. But when we have had that discussion with some landlords, it's surprising how many times they go, yeah, I care about my ground and I want to make sure my ground is good. So we're willing to talk. And many times they don't take my first idea. So I have to you know, compromise on whatever their idea is or whatever, but that's fine. I don't care. I just, I want to do something that makes the ground good. And also I do think it makes a difference when you're talking to the landlord about something that is good for their ground, not just good for you this one particular year. Yep. I also was thinking about this. Brian was saying it. I was thinking as a landlord listening, wait a second. So you'll yield more. So you're willing to pay me more? Yep. <laughs> I yes. like the sound of yes. that. That yes. sounds okay. It's the same kind of discussion we have with drain tile. So we've worked out different arrangements with people on drain tile with landlords. And I, I mean, the, the most popular one has been because a lot of these landlords have money sitting in the bank earning point nothing. And so They'll, they'll spend the money on the tile, and then we just pay more on cash rent every year. So they get a better return on their investment, plus then their ground is more valuable. I think you had a follow-up here. Go ahead. How do we change the calculations then? Because right now our um, levels are off because of the lime. Hydrogen, that's... How you do know, you change right. what base, calculation? Base saturation and those kinds yep. of things. Okay, we'll get into that right after this break. We've got to take a commercial break here. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, and if you're thinking, if you're just tuning in and saying, boy, a lot of fertility questions today, you're right. We're following the Ag PhD Soils Clinic. We'll be right back taking more questions from our audience after this. It came in waves, ruthlessly eliminating the toughest, hard-to-kill grassy weeds in wheat. Everest 3.0 Herbicide, a new formulation, delivers superior flush-after-flush control of wild oats and green foxtail. And Everest 3.0 is registered for use on yellow foxtail, barnyard grass, Japanese brome, and key broadleaf weeds that can invade your wheat and rob your yields. Ask your retailer about Everest 3.0. Always read and follow label directions. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at HeadsUpST.com. How can natural products help you raise bigger and better crops? I'm Darren Hefty. In recent years, natural products have exploded onto the market claiming to improve soil health and plant development. But what's right for your farm? That's why we're devoting a full day to our first ever Ag PhD Naturals Workshop. It's Wednesday, February 16th at the Morton Center near Baltic, South Dakota. Our research team has spent years testing hundreds of natural products. We wanna share with you what we've learned. For more about this free event, go to agphd.com. While you're there, check out other Ag PhD events we have coming up in January and February, including agronomy workshops in corn, soybeans, and wheat, a 
Tiling Clinic. Two days dedicated to helping you understand soils and making your own fertility recommendations and much more. There's great information here that we want to share with you. So to learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. There's a lot of great information here and we can't wait to share it all with you. To learn more about these events and register, go to agphd.com. It's smart to make the right agronomic choices, and it's even smarter to get rewarded for them. With the Bayer Plus Rewards Program, you earn cash back on seed, herbicides, and other eligible products. And it keeps getting smarter, because now you can earn an additional 10% bonus when you send your redemption check to your retailer. To learn more, contact your retailer today. Protect your yields and get the most from your land with Bayer Plus Rewards. Visit MyBayerPlus.com and see program terms and conditions for full details. Fill once, plant all day. The Thrive 3D application system from FMC is a revolutionary in-furrow crop protection platform that plants up to 480 acres between refills. The Thrive 3D application system mounts to most major planter brands and can be yours at no cost with the FMC Freedom Pass program. To learn more, call 815-362-7747 today. Always read and follow all label directions. back. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We are broadcasting live from the Morton Center here at the Ag PhD Field Day site following the Ag PhD Soils Clinic. Let's hey, take right, no, oh. right before the break, remember we had that question about the lime and it was how does this change the ratios and stuff. Oh, okay. Yep, you're right. You're right. Yep. So anyway, if you're going to remain with this Pell lime strategy, so we were just talking about, okay, this is rented ground. Don't know if we're going to have it in the future. So they've been just doing Pell lime. If you're going to do that and this pH is going to remain in the mid fives, how's that going to affect things? Um, look, I, I'm not even as focused on my ratios and my calcium, uh, or I should say my base saturation or anything else and trying to fix the whole soil. I'm probably going to do some banding, and I'm just going to look at whatever that base saturation test says, and if it's showing me, boy, I'm really low on K there, I'm just going to make sure when I'm banding K that I'm banding at least as much as the grain is going to remove, maybe just a few pounds extra because I know that my soil is short, so I can't count on my, uh, getting a lot out of my soil uh, but yeah I'm gonna look at things differently if I rent that ground and if I just don't know if I'm gonna have it the next year what we talked about over the last couple days with banding is it's a great way to get extraction of nutrients quickly whereas broadcasting it's very common for broadcast nutrients to not get recovered for 5 to 10 or maybe even 15 years it could be a long time down the road you don't want to do that if you're going to be farming this ground in the short term. So I, if you're not banding already, I'd be looking at banding. Now, you can band different ways. You can strip till. Uh, you could do it with the planter. I mean, there are a lot of ways to band, but I just encourage you to take a look at that, and let's focus on banding the zone and how much you think you can remove that year, and that's what I'm going to try to stay focused on. Other than, yeah, if you can have that discussion with the landlord, about the, the lime, then that, that helps, but that still doesn't fix the problem of I still might only have this ground for a year or two, so broadcasting probably doesn't make as much sense. All right? Okay, I think this one was first. Let's yeah. take this uh, Colby from Central Minnesota and looking at yield versus soil test data. Have you looked back at data from, say, 10-plus years ago? No. Or... Nope. Don't, you don't have anything like that? No, nope, no, nope, we don't. So we just started doing this where we were using GPS points out in the field probably within the last five years. 
So we have about five years worth of data. Now this is the first year we've run Malik 3 on everything. Prior to that we'd run DTPA and, and either Olson or Bray tests for phosphorus. So yeah, we do have about five years worth of information. We spent a lot of time focused on the 2021 stuff simply because that was, those were all Malik tests and we were talking more about that. But there wasn't anything uh, that we showed you over the last couple of days where, boy, all the last four years were totally different than this year. If something was different, then we did, we did try to highlight that. So then going forward every year, you're going to compile that data, try lock yep. down these numbers yeah. where you think your trend lines will be. Yep, that's future. right. And then the other thing that we're going to do is we're going to be working with a number of other farmers, at least in our region here, and hopefully aggregating a lot more data. And if we can put more stuff together, I mean, I still am most interested in my ground and my results. But I'm, I'm also interested in the aggregate and what we can learn from everybody out there. So long term, I think this is something interesting because if we're able to do that, you know, I think that'll really help us for soil test recommendations. But then the other side of it is, could we take that same philosophy and do it with plant tissue analysis maybe in the future and, and other things to fine tune this whole deal as farming? Because let's face it, we got to get smarter as time goes on, I mean, we always seem to get squeezed. Whenever commodity prices get good, what happens? Input costs go way up, and we're back to being squeezed again all the time, it seems like. So we, we got to always try to figure out how can we stay one step ahead. Yep, thank you. Yep, thanks. Yep, another question over here. <clears throat> I've probably watched your guys' videos 100 times on the Internet, but uh, being here, is, it's 100 times better than watching those I mean, the information in this book oh, is excellent. I Thank think you. we I think we need to use that as a promo for all of our workshops. Yes, that'd be awesome. Anyway, that'd be awesome. Well, <laughs> but, we appreciate that. Thank but, you. Thanks for coming. It, Where are it, you from? Uh, the southeast corner of South Dakota. Okay. Uh, on page twenty-eight, you've got a breakdown of clay, silt, sand, loam, and kind of the CEC range. Yep. The water capacity and everything. Yep. And you guys are always you know, the, the cutting edge information in this is just so good for an entry level thing to get into changing things dramatically on your farm. But we've got basically Trent, Chancellor, Wakanda, Worthing type soils and, and fairly heavy. But is there going to be some future things that you guys will be doing that where you could really be noticing parallels on trying lime first or a certain type of lime or a certain elemental sulfur with a certain we got this wo soil that is just insanely tight and terrible yeah but you run a tile line through it and you could do elemental sulfur there sulfur yep. there and is there anything like that that's gonna to where a guy could really start to hone in on some of the problem areas or tackling issues to really bring those bring your dollars to really to the table. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let me start with this. We, you don't hear us talk about soil types in particular because obviously we're speaking to a big audience all across the United States and Canada is where our radio shows broadcast. But what we do talk about is things like cation exchange capacity because that helps us understand is your soil truly heavy, light, whatever it is. Cation exchange capacity is the type of clay, the amount of clay in your soil, and then the amount of organic matter. And that's really what I want to know first. And once I understand that, and so to your point, to your question where you say this really tight, heavy stuff, even for us on our farm, one of the, one of the great things is 
just about our farm is we have tremendous uh, variety in the soil. So we've got some super heavy river bottom ground, all probably almost exactly like what you're talking about. Then we also the have all the way. Stuff, yep. Yes. Then then we have all the way to pretty and sandy coming stuff. Out, coming out of that, we got we have a sandy ridge, and we, yep. now you see the hills as you get here to the Ag PhD field. They say, man, we got some variable soil types to those hills. Most farmers hate variability. We love it because that gives us plenty of testing sites, and then we do work with farmers all over the place too. So I would just say we tried to step through a lot of those things here. Um, and give you some basics over the last couple of days. But when it comes to real specifics, then we're, we're pretty open to questions. And so what I would say is every day here on the show, uh, or almost every day, it seems like we get soil tests in, and Darren and I will talk through those soil tests and just kind of what we think and, and where that needs to go. Because even you bring up tile. One of the big things with tile has to do with cation exchange capacity. The higher the cation exchange capacity, the closer together the tile lines need to be, just as a basic concept because the, the water isn't going to move as far. So I, I don't know if I have anything great beyond that. Darren, do you have anything to add that we can give you as a general stuff? Not really. We, we're, we're looking at a lot of these soil test characteristics more so than we're worried about what exactly the classification of that soil is we we can deal with the we can deal with all the symptoms and all the the problems that are going to get generated uh just in in broader terms like this rather than uh oh here's a soil type that's only in south dakota and yeah it, it's just a little more limited approach where you may have a soil type to brian's point that might match up with what they have in minnesota very similarly in terms of characteristics and our management would be the same yeah, but with all the, if we just simply look at the soil test, then we can manage things accordingly based on that soil test, and hopefully we can we can maximize the dollars. But just understand, we can take just about any soil and make it pretty good. Um, I can't change sand to clay, but if I've got a number of different clay soils, I, I mean, we can make those better. We might just have to manage well, them a I'll, little bit differently. I'll make this comment, too. Kip Kohler's down in Missouri. One of the cool things that Kip did is he found a certain soil type that works really well for him and his management practices. It was the easiest for him to turn from, uh, it's okay, to wow. And so that's when he would look at land that was for sale. If he saw that soil type, he would jump on it. we got time for one more quick question. Go ahead. Yes, I would also second that you're doing a job. Um, the question is, is this. Um, if you've got a friend that uh, owns some land, yep. but they are renting it out, yep. and the very first thing you said was tile. Yep. How do we come up with a number that the landlord could feel that they could adjust the rent yeah. and make it affordable? And I'm talking about not a streak, but I'm talking about pattern time. Pattern time. Yeah. Okay, great. So, great question. Yep, so a lot of times we just look at, all right, what, what what's the going rate for money or something like that? Let's say it's 5%. So uh, the, right now, the landlord's probably getting almost nothing in the bank. We'd say, all right, uh, landlord, you will give you 5% return on your investment. You spend $100, we'll give you $5 more rent every single year. That's a 5% ROI. Maybe you have to go a little higher than that, but I'd look at more, more at it on that ROI scale. Yep, uh, it's a great question, one we get often. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Thanks for joining us today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more ag information.